0: Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses, uh, we're going to begin in verse nine, or really 18b. Um, I suppose many of you have heard that the person who did the verse and chapter numbers was as if he was riding a horse while he did it. So sometimes you have verses that are broken in the middle of the sentence. Um, this is one of them. So we want to do 18b, where it starts with, I rejoice, Um, and we'll read all the way to verse 30. So chapter 1, verse 18b to verse 30. Let's read together. I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that... Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by my life or by my death, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. May God add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of His Word. And just for good measure, this is the Word of the Lord. So we want to pick up today in verse 21. We read that entire text because it's, it's you don't you, you don't divide mid sentence. But this is we want to pick up in verse 21. We left off last week in verse 21. So we're going to pick up here where it says to live for me. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. And we want to remind ourselves of where Paul is while he's writing this. He's in prison. Not happy. Not, I mean, he's happy, but prison is not happy. He's, he's in prison. And at this point in Paul's life, if you read the book of Acts, he is unflappable. He's the superhero of the New Testament. Uh, I mean, Jesus is really the only hero but Paul is the the Superman. like he gets he gets stoned to death in a city, dragged out of the city and thrown on the ground, and the disciples rally around him and pray for him. And he revives. And he revives and stands back up and wipes his lip, Doesn't say that, I'm imagining that, wipes his lip, and walks back into the town that they' just stoned him in. This guy is unbeatable. He goes, he gets stuck in prison, and what's he do? He gets thrown into the deepest, darkest cell, and he decides, you know what, I'm down here by myself, this is great meditation time, I'm going to sing some hymns. And he sings hymns while in prison, and the earth shakes because of the praise, and the ground shakes, and the bars fall off, and the jail breaks open, and he doesn't leave. He stays there. He's one of these men that they say, we're going to lock you in prison. He says, great, I'll convert the guards. We're going to put you in solitary. He says, we're going to put you in solitary confinement. And he says, wonderful, more time to pray by myself. And then they're like, well, fine, we'll let you go, but you're not allowed to preach. And he'll be like, tough luck stopping me. And he just keeps going. He gets They're like, well, we'll just ignore him. And he's loud and everybody, you can't ignore him. This guy is incredible. And yet... He's not. And yet, he's not. He's just like you and me. He hurts. He's tired. He gets weary. He gets frustrated. He has broken relationships. He has people that don't like him. He rubs people the wrong way. Oh, and constantly, by the way. He sometimes can't get along with everybody. He's sometimes difficult to be around. As Barnabas, the encourager of the Bible, had trouble with Paul. The guy that seems to be able to encourage everybody struggled with Paul at one point. This guy, this is who we're reading. These are the words of this man. A man who was at once a murderer, uh, who was at one time a murderer, a religious zealot, who murdered people because he felt like that Christ was heresy, so he killed people for it. And this man who had a in his hand approval to go kill Christians in a scroll, lock them up and destroy Christianity. And on the road, on his way to do that wicked task, God showed up and knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and said, "No." That's the John Elkins translation. Knocks him off. No. And he asks him, why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And his response, who are you, Lord? And the rest of Paul's life is him learning the answer to that question. Oh, if we would grasp that our life is spent learning the answer to the question, who are you, Lord? Then things like prison... Pandemics, global catastrophes, governments, and uh, wicked, wicked governmental leaders—all kinds of stuff—all these, ans- all these things would be answered because we, we'd be looking beyond this life to a kingdom greater than this one. That's who we're reading—a guy that has learned to look to the future kingdom, who who recognizes that his citizenship is in heaven and his king is Jesus. And so, he says here, from prison, being broken down with nothing, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And don't you love the tenderness in that? He doesn't go, hey you, and give you some harsh, difficult thing to follow. No, his letter is couched in, this is where I am. This is where I am. I'm here. And it's a call and a plea to join me where I am. I'm here for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. His exhortation to you in this verse is by example. I'm in prison, I have nothing. And yet to live in prison means Christ. Life is Jesus. Jesus is all that matters, there's nothing else. Oh, we, could, we could sit on that phrase alone forever. Christ is life, is the way that we could put it, right? Life is Christ, Christ is life. To, for me to live is Christ. So any living I do is in Jesus. And yet all the value of that life is Jesus. Life is Christ, There is no life apart from Christ. So the question we need to ask ourselves as we approach the rest of this passage is real simple. Is that you? Is that me? Apply it to yourself. Is it it me? Is this descriptive of me? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Is that true? It should be. It, It needs to be. Because apart from Christ there is no life. And Christ is the only life that matters. So for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he's going to talk about why that is, and why it is to live being Christ, why that is as well. So, we continue here. It says in verse 22, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, For that is far better. So he says here, uh, for me, if if I'm here on this earth, if I'm to live here in the skin, in my skin, flesh and bones, if I'm living here, then that means fruitful labor for me. So here, here what this is, what is the labor that Paul is talking about? Paul's specific labor is preaching, evangelizing, mission work, planting churches. That's Paul's specific labor. Paul, Paul's specific labor. Um, I would also argue that preaching, evangelizing, and mission work are, are everybody's specific labor. But this passage, Paul, for him, this preaching, evangelizing, uh, witnessing, ministry, mission, that's his labor. So he says, what is fruitful labor? So first, what is labor? The labor here is preaching, showing the love of Christ, and like we said, learning who the Lord is. The labor. Here is learning who the Lord is. Who are you, Lord? His, the rest of his life is spent in that labor. Learning who the Lord is and becoming conformed more like Him that I would be more like who I was created to be because you were created, what? In the image of God. And that image was marred by sin. Sin destroyed that image in you and you were born into a sinful world sin corrupted that image of God, and you have no way to get back to that image except that Jesus Christ transform your heart and conform you to who He is. He is the only way back to who you are supposed to be. So He, uh, this is labor for Paul, so that's the labor, it's fruitful, and it's fruitful labor. Fruitful being that which lasts. That which has value. That which it brings sustenance. So the labor brings some sort of fulfillment. And that's what fruitful implies here. So for me, if I'm here in the body, that means fruitful labor. That, that's some dedication. Now think about that. That is some massive dedication. If, if I'm to stay alive, if I am to be alive, then that means fruitful labor. Two things are going on here. One, if I'm to stay alive, that means fruitful labor. So he's got this incredible dedication to the mission of God. Second, he recognizes that God has a purpose for him living here. That he has some labor for him to do. Francis Schaeffer once said, God has put me on this earth to do great many things. He said, I am so far behind, I will never die. (laughs) This is the idea though. God has put you on the earth to do a great many things. You have a job to do. While you are alive, you have a job to do. Christians don't get to retire. You don't get to take summer vacation from Christianity. You don't get to retire from Christ. You don't get vacation from Jesus. Because indeed, Sabbath rest and vacation and life and all of that is found in Christ. These life is in him. Refreshment is in him. Why would you want to take a break? There's no reason to. So here in the body, while I'm in the skin, may my life be poured out on the altar of service for the Lord. That should be all of our prayers. May Lord use me. Use me up. Waste me on this world. Like pour me out. That I would I would fulfill the mission of God. That I would sing praises to the Lord with my life, that He would He would look down and see and go, Yeah, that one, that one brings me glory and honor. Oh, that we could be that way. So fruitful labor for me, that which lasts. He hasn't run in vain. Listen, you have work to do here that matters in eternity. Grasp that for just a second. You Think about that. What you do here matters there. What is it Jesus tells us? Don't, don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy. Right, like this. When I get to the Lord, when I when I get to heaven, when when He uh, brings heaven down and And we are in His presence eternally when we are there present with Him. I I don't want to bring tink, a little crown just one tink. I want to back up truckloads. I want want to be bringing everything I had in life to Him and dumping it at His feet and going, I know it's not enough. It will never be enough. I know it's not enough to praise You and bring You glory, but Lord, this is all I got. And I did the best I did all I could and I want to hear Him grab me and hold me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I want Him, I want him to be pleased. And did you know the Bible says you can please Him now? You can do that now. So I, I, I have to believe that laying down our life here brings joy and glory to the Father In eternity. And I so want that. I so want that. So, Paul, with that in mind, is torn between these two things. And he says, I'm hard. He says, Yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I I do love that phrase. We tend to think that that means that Paul has the choice. Which I shall choose I shall not tell. But the word there really ought to probably ought to be prefer, not choose. Which I prefer I cannot tell. whether it means, you understand, he's divided, staying on earth or going to heaven. He doesn't really have a choice. Like that's not his to choose. God decides that. And he knows. He knows that. He knows God decides that. Um, so what he's saying here is, which one I prefer, I can't tell. So, so get this. I want you to hear the heart of every pastor I've ever met. Everyone, even the lousy ones. I say that with all genuine respect. Don't get mad. Um, Every every pastor I've ever met, their heart is for the people they serve. Like Paul, they long to be in heaven. They long for it and they, they desire for it, but they so love the people of God that they serve that they can't fathom leaving them. They can't fathom being in heaven. They, they are here and they are 100% here, yet they have this desire to go elsewhere and, and they're torn. I can completely relate to this. And every pastor I have ever known, even the lousy ones, have that. Just to be fair, I, I've known a lot of pastors and most of them were great. Most. Now, this is the heart of every pastor I've ever met. Most Christians that I know who are involved in community churches, churches that are built around relationships, they feel the same way. It's like, ah, I really want to be in heaven, but I really want to take everybody with me. I want all of you going too. And they're hard-pressed. Between the two, in verse 23, he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to, and I'm going to read this in with a little bit of Greek translation here. My desire is to break, camp, raise up, anchor, or find solution and be with Christ. For it is far better. So here, he's got these two things he's torn from. Be with Christ or being with us, being here on the earth. And he says, to break camp is far better. You understand, th- this is a military terminology. The idea of you're at war and you have a camp, and closing up camp means the battle is over, it means the war is over. Picking up anchor means you have finished where you are and you are setting sail to the last horizon. The other way to translate this would be find solution or resolution. That this would be over and done with. And that all the problems in the world would be met. Everything would be solved. So this this is a beautiful statement that Paul makes. that, That we are in the midst of a battle. We are in the midst of the war. And we pull up camp or lift up anchor when we are done here. The battle ends and we will go. So process that for a minute. There will come a day where the war will be over. Where your struggles and your strife and all this stuff we deal with is done. And you will fold up camp and be with Christ. Permanently not momentarily, permanently, be in the presence of the Lord God Almighty and you will be with Jesus and you will stand in His presence. And while we are here on this earth, we wage war. We are in the camp of God waging war against sin and the adversary and death. This is why we bow in prayer. And we don't wage war like the world does. We don't scream and yell and holler and shake our fists at people. No, we wage war with the weapons of love and prayer and perseverance in the faith and standing for what's right, even if it costs us. We wage wage war through radical humility. Somebody comes and yells and shouts you down and, and we nod to them and we tell them about the love of Jesus. We don't shout and fight back. You know, one of the most frustrating things that the uh, government authorities ever dealt with in church history is Christians who understood this. My favorite example is John Huss, a preacher who taught the doctrines of grace before Luther and Calvin ever came on the scene. I think it's a hundred years before Luther. He preached, if you line up Luther's sermons with John Huss's sermons, they're almost identical. In fact, I think Luther stole from him. Okay. Um, just kidding. He didn't steal. Relax. And there's, there's two sermons lined up next to each other. You can see John Huss talking about the grace of Jesus Christ and how you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Scripture alone is the authority to the glory of God alone. You see him preaching these things and the Pope at the time, who at the time was uh, ruling secular and religious life demands he stop, because it is contrary to the Catholic doctrine of the time, and he demands he stops, and Huss says, I, "I can't stop, but I'll gladly come before you and you know tell you about it. Pope calls him and, and he comes willingly, and this gracious, tender calm man comes before the Pope and outlines the doctrines of grace and they call him a heretic and they yell at him and they scream at him and tell him to defend himself and he says that the Word of God defends itself. I don't have to do any of that. And then they burn him. And they kill him. And in his death he proclaims the glory of Jesus Christ saying that there is no way for you to burn out the Word of God once it has been in the heart of man. When God has moved in the heart of a man, you can't stamp out the word. Those are the most frustrating people to wicked governments. The ones that you throw in prison and they go, I'll convert your guards. The ones that you lock in solitary confinement and they sing hymns and pray. The ones that you say, fine, we're just going to put you over here in a corner. And they go, all right, I'm going I'm to yell and scream so everybody hears the gospel from my little corner. But I'll stay where you put me. I'm just going to preach the gospel where I am. And they changed the world. Give me one godly man. One man who would submit to love and worship of God and Jesus Christ. Who would be conformed to his image. Give me one man like that. Over a thousand scholars who won't lift a finger to preach the gospel. Doesn't matter how great the scholar how brilliant the mind. Without the gospel, it's pointless. Paul says, if we remain here, we remain in the thick of the battle. We have a part to play in the war. and You have a role. Life is a battleground, not a playground. So he continues here in verse Uh, 24, here he says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. If you read Greek, that's a beautiful sentence. It's even got some rhythm and rhyme to it. Uh, The word remain and continue are rhyming words that are from the same root. It's beautiful. I'm not going to try to say it, in case you were hoping. I'm not going to try to say it. I'm bad enough with English rhyming. Um, So the idea here is this, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So let's stop there and think about that for just a moment. God deems you necessary. Just take it at surface level. To remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. God deems you necessary for my work. That's what Paul says. God's deeming the Philippians necessary for his work. And likewise, it works the same way with us. Life in Christianity and labor in Christianity is best done in community. And it's best understood in community. I labor for your sake. And I, it's necessary. So God deems you necessary for others to work in, to work with. Do you, are you grasping that? You matter to God. You matter enough to God to where a man like Paul is kept on earth. Think, think about that. How much must Christ have loved Paul? A lot, right? Like just the answer is simple. A lot. Christ must have loved Paul a great deal. So, so for Christ to leave Paul here on earth with the Holy Spirit's presence, but not physically in the presence of God, that means something. It means something. It means that you matter enough for God to have included you in his plan for the labor of other believers. Just let that, like that, that, should, that should give you some joy in your soul that Christ cares enough about you to put laborers around you and go, I'm going to keep him there so that that person would meet that person and they would hear my name and become more, more overjoyed. In the presence of Christ, that the Spirit of God would move in them because they met so and so. I firmly believe that this general application could be done of all of us. Right now, it is necessary for you to be here for the sake of the gospel communicated to other people. It is necessary. You matter, you have a place in the kingdom. You are on the field. It matters. Paul views joy in this life in laboring to lift up and engage the community. The community of faith. He he views joy in this life in laboring to lift up and engage the community of faith. Life is best lived within a community of faith. Let's look at verse 25. Through 26 here, convinced of this, so he's certain that this is the case. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he's convinced of this, that he will remain, and then the wording here is that I will remain and remain alongside, or waiting alongside you. I will remain remain and I will wait while remaining with you I will I will wait alongside you Remember the story that we covered last week where I told you that I went running with a friend of mine in high school and I was not a big runner I was a basketball player and soccer player and I but I ran to stay and some some modicum of shape while I was out of season and and so I'm running with this guy who's a track star and a soccer player and if you've ever known a track and soccer player they're ridiculous they run forever and he and they run fast and so we were running together about five mile run and we're running um and as we're running he's you know coaching me on breathing because basketball you just kind of like you just you hope that you catch your breath, but it's all sprints, right? So it didn't, it wasn't, you just sprint up and down the court. So you, I'm running with him. And he's like, you really need to breathe through your nose and out through your mouth and all these and get into a rhythm of running and, and breathing and your breathing should match the bounce of your run. Taught me so much and we're running together and I, we finished the five mile run. And I'm like, hey man, you want to come inside, get a drink? And then, you know, like you can, we can hang out for a bit. And he was like, no, I still gotta, I still gotta run some more. And I was like, oh, okay. And he took off. And it was insane the speed with which he took off. And I realized all of a sudden, he was running slower for me. He was being nice. So as he's running, he's slowing down for me to run next to him. Indeed, Paul uses this analogy of running a marathon as a Christian. That you run the race, and you run it well, and, and we run it together. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, we slow down for those who are with us. Why? For the joy of their progress and joy in the faith. We slow down to run alongside them. Like Not everybody's going to grasp everything about the Incarnation the instant that you tell them Jesus is Lord and Savior. Not everybody is going to understand large theological terminology. But everybody is charged to get to know the Lord. And thus, we run together. We slow down when we need to. We speed up sometimes to catch up to each other. I had that experience recently. Somebody somebody threw out a theological term, one of these really long ones, that I haven't heard since grad school, since early in grad school, because nobody uses it. And they threw out this big theological term, and I went, what, what does that mean? And I had to go look it up. I had to run a little faster to catch up to the guy. I know some very godly older men who will sit down with me and and talk with me. And sometimes, I have to be honest, it's difficult for me to keep up with their godliness. Now, they may not be theologically savvy. They may not be uh, overwhelmingly uh, theological. But when we're talking about the things of the world and they respond with such overwhelming grace, I am floored by their godliness. And they may not even understand simple doctrines. But they know Christ. And when those doctrines are shown to them in scripture, they go, yeah, I knew those. And they, yeah. I mean, of course. Those men are men to be admired. Because grace has pervaded their soul and changed them to the point where they respond to everything in godliness and holiness. And those are the men that I frequently have to speed up to catch up to. And these, sometimes we slow down in the race and sometimes we speed up, but we always run together. This is what Paul says, convinced of this, I will remain and remain alongside you. We run together. We may have to slow down sometimes, we may have to speed up, but we always are together. And why? For your progress and joy in the faith. For your progress and joy. And joy in the faith. The, the goal of our labor as fellow Christians is for the progress and joy of others in the faith. It is an external, a external attitude. We are looking out at each other and going, I want you to have joy and I want you to grow in the faith because of our interactions. Because I am striving to know the Lord. I'm striving to know the Lord. And you are striving to know the Lord. And therefore we do it together. We press forward together. That's why we speak so freely about who God is and what He has done in our hearts and lives. That's why we speak this way. Because He has done a work and we are convinced that we are here for the progress and joy in the faith of others. One of the goals of our labor is the increase of the saints. One of the goals of our labor is the increase of the saints. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you were spoken of this way? If somebody, if anybody said, you know, that guy gives me so much joy. And I feel like every time I'm around him, I I learn something about Jesus. I feel like every time I'm around that guy, I grow. that's, that's That's how I want to be described. Selfishly, that's how I want to be described. I want people to look at me and go, you know, when I'm around him, I find joy and I find faith. And I grow in both. And I'm around that guy. That's how I want to be. That's how I want all of you to be, too. Anybody who attends Sovereign Grace Fellowship, that's how I want us to be. I want people to look at our congregation and go, you know, they're weird and they're bizarre, and they don't really fit anywhere, but when we're around them, we see Jesus. And nothing else seems to matter. That's how I want it to be. So here's a little, a little homework for you. If, uh, wouldn't it be great if you identified somebody this week that you could contact? Um, somebody maybe even in this room, or, or somebody you see is missing, and figure out a way to bring them joy In faith, figure out some way to do it. I'm not going to give you any ideas. I'm just throwing that out there. Maybe you could identify somebody and figure out a way to bring them joy in faith and just get a little taste of what Paul is talking about here. When he says, convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue alongside you for your progress and joy in the faith. Then he says this last phrase here. Says his last phrase here where he says, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, translating that, that verse is a little difficult because it's hard to see if Paul is saying you will have ample cause to joy because of Paul or if he's saying that Paul will have ample cause to joy because of their presence with him. I think Paul did that on purpose. I think it's, it's written that way on purpose so that you would understand that the joy of the community of faith, those who have trusted in Christ Jesus, who died for sins and rose again, that we would have life, those who are connected through that medium, that truth, would, would see joy is found in presence with each other. That joy is found around each other and connected to each other. And we're not. Um, we are. We, we have all, in the last month, felt the distance uh, that we've been forced to engage in. And even now, as we spread out around the room, it feels awkward. And yet, we know this truth. That when we see our fellow believers, there is joy. It doesn't matter where they're from or who they are, when they're fellow believers. Now, I grew up in the Northeast. I went went to high school in the Northeast. And there are not a lot of strong believers in the Northeast. It is not like Texas, where you knock on every door and people can tell you what church they went to and where they go and who baptized them and what youth camp they were in and all these things. That doesn't exist up there. In fact, um, the majority of churches in that area are struggling to survive. And genuine Christianity is hard to find sometimes. We rejoice in those that are there. And we rejoice that there is a movement of the Spirit still going there. In fact, Billy Graham visited my hometown, uh, in Baltimore. He visited Baltimore and he tried to have a crusade. And he called it the spiritual graveyard of America. Ten years later, his son Franklin Graham repeated the same phrase. So when I see a believer, it doesn't matter if I agree with every little tenet. You know, we're going to strive for that, which is what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to to wrestle for agreement and wrestle for unity. But when I see a believer, oh, that's family. And there's joy in me to know that there's somebody else who believes Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again, that I would have life, and life abundant and free simply because He did it. And He rescued me. And He rescued them. And I can't help... But sometimes just weep when I see them, I remember going on a mission trip, and I, I was, you know where you know, when you're in a youth mission trip and you got like everybody smells bad, and you're going to a new place that you've never been. and I remember getting out of the van or the bus or whatever it was, and I looked up and I saw the believers, and I just started to weep because it hit me. We are connected. In Christ. And that supersedes any earthly connection that we could ever have. And the joy that began to overflow in me just came out in tears and hugs. And it was ugly hugs. You know, like snot ridden tears. And just gross. And yet, that's the love that is uniting us in Christ Jesus. When it says, they will know you by your love for one another. That's part of it. This is part of it. That we labor to see each other grow and and love Christ more and know Him more. Christians build each other up. Christ indeed says that they will know us by our love. And so Paul says here that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. Now the phrase glory in Christ, we can can often sometimes spiritualize that and say that means some, some... weird spiritual thing, but the, the reality is glory in Christ means to recognize the reality of Jesus. Glory is an r- accurate representation of reality. So the example, for, for example, the glory of a frog is that it's slimy, wet, hops, and croaks. That's the glory of a frog. You know it's a frog because it does those things. The glory of man is that he's sinful. You know he's man because he's sinful the glory of God, what is it? Righteousness, holiness, wrath, justice,
1: goodness, mercy.
0: All is Him. So when it says that you would glory in Christ, what He's saying is that you would know the Lord. You would know the Lord. Who are you, Lord? The rest of His life He spends answering that question. Who are you, Lord? The rest of our life we spend answering that question. That we would know the Lord and we would know the Lord together. And then that would be glory. That would be the glory of Christ.